We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My dad always says, if you want to know somebody, don't, get, don't listen to them. Watch just watch what they, they do. do. And, and they tell you who they are. Yeah, they'll always tell you who they are. That's my answer. And it's true. byproduct of the transformative power of love and insight that comes to us in the forms of life's greatest teachers. It's my mentors, coaches, and teachers that have shined the light to guide my path along my journey. But I'm here to tell you, it's the small, still voice within that is our greatest guide. Listen to it. Be on the lookout for it. Your life is always speaking to you. You're welcome. In today's episode, I sit down for a conversation with my hero, my dad, to talk about the experience of having his family of seven dwindled to two in the span of a few short years. He opens up about finding the strength and the courage to live after unimaginable tragedy, how to put one foot in front of the other in moments of grief, and reveals the things that help him cope. We discuss his quest to find answers and the legacy of love that will endure forever, his journey to find peace and joy from the depths of despair will touch anyone's life and remind us all what it means to be truly grateful for what we have. As you listen to this episode, I ask you to consider, do you ever feel like you're living in a fog and you don't know how to get out? Are you paralyzed with the fear that something might happen to you or loved one that keeps you from truly living? What would people say when you're gone? Would they say that you loved and you lived well? or that you are consumed by the things that don't last beyond this lifetime. What do you want your legacy to be? So with those things in mind, let's get started. Today's gonna be a little different. I'm super excited because I am back in Tuscaloosa today. I drove back last night to my hometown where I grew up and I'm in our family home on Claybrook Drive where I've spent basically my whole life until I graduated from Alabama. and. I'm sitting in um, my dad's new repurposed, full-blown music studio, which is really amazing, and where he's going to be able to um, 
come up with so many creative ideas and record so much cool music. And today we're recording this podcast. And uh, so I wanted to come check it out, but I wanted more um, more to have him on and to talk to him about more of the story that came from episode one. I think there was such good feedback and so much feedback from uh, you guys hearing about my story. I wanted to have my dad on to continue that and have his perspective and continue to tell that um, that story. And, and, you know, my dad is somebody that, one, he's my hero in every sense of the word. He's a talented, accomplished musician, writer, producer. He's written books. He's written and recorded with some of the biggest names um, in music. He, he's traveled the world, um, playing on big stages, but he's also a, a family guy and was super as involved as a dad could be in their child's life and was a part of every, you know, every high and low that I've gone through and every season of my life, he's seen me go through, um, you know, those experiences. And he too went through everything that I went through that I talked about with my mom and my sister. And and so I wanted to bring him on and, and talk to him about what that was like for him. So dad, welcome. To the- Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Growing up in our family and at, you know, in our house was, you know, a unique experience. No one else has had that but me and Anna, but both you and mom were educators and were teachers. And that, I think, alone, just by itself, totally shaped how you parented us, how you raised us, the conversations that we had around our dinner table, the topics that we weren't afraid to talk about. Um, And for years now, I've been thinking about the fact that, you know, it was around our, our family dinner table or around, you know, sitting outside on the patio or wherever we are, it didn't really matter. The conversations that we tend to have, whether it's just with our family or with our friends, are reflective of not just who we are as people, but something I wanted to bottle up and and save because they've been so transformational for me and and insightful for me. And so much of that comes from your wisdom, but um, I want to and need to share that with other people. And that's what Your Welcome Radio is. It's, It's a place where I can bring on the the mentors, the teachers, the coaches that have transformed my life. And and my dad is definitely the first and foremost. So, yeah, I think probably where it makes sense to start is talking a little about, you know, what the last 10 years has been like for you. You take us back to when Anna was diagnosed and what that was like as, as a dad, as a parent, and as leader of our household. Well, from episode one, you told the story in, in its arch, I suppose, as far as just uh, where everything came from. I come from teachers. My, my parents were both teachers, and so it's in my DNA, and I ended up being a musician. That was also expected in my house, but I found myself in the college uh, world of teaching, and um, so I was doing that when that happened in 2009. I was literally at school in my office in between classes. It was probably, 
I can't remember, 10 o'clock, 9.45, something like that in the morning. And my wife, Pam, calls my cell phone, which never happened. She never called for any purpose other than absolute emergencies. And uh, she called and said that Dr. Bobo, locally, who is a terrific diagnostician, and he happens to run um, a dock in the box. He had diagnosed her um, at the dock in the box from a blood test that he personally did and he personally looked at and uh, called both of them in and said, I think you have leukemia. Uh, you need to go um, to see the oncologist, which he had already called to set up an appointment for that same day. They were on just about to get in the car and, and go to the oncologist meeting. She, she just said, uh, Bobo thinks it's cancer. Uh, he thinks it's leukemia. And all he said was, don't read anything. Don't, it'll just scare yourself to death. Just go and go now and never leave her alone in the hospital. This is what he told my wife. And so she called me telling me they were headed that way. And uh, that is not at all what I was prepared to hear. We, we were in a season of, uh, you know, normal family activity. You were a senior in high school mm -hmm. and uh, Anna was a senior at the university and she was a stellar student. She excelled, she wanted to be a university president. That was her goal. And uh, she was well on her way. She was summa cum laude. It was in March and a mere eight weeks from graduation. All of a sudden her entire academic career was stopped immediately, right before she could get to graduation and go on. And it was disturbing to hear. Uh, you, your chest tightens, you, you can hardly breathe. And I walked down to the dean's office and just burst into his office and say, I've got to leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll see you. They mm -hmm. think Anna has cancer. And I just left, got in the car and drove. My mind was somewhere else. And how my car got home, I don't know. But uh, I drove, I commuted anyway, uh, an hour every direction. And so it was used to going on automatic pilot, but this time I was just, I, I didn't even see the road, I don't think. Uh, it was the beginning of a, a very deep hole we all fell into that was of immediate emergency. Every decision that was made, every uh, action that we had to make the, for that remainder of that day and every day forward was vital. And everybody knew it and we were told it and we felt it and the very survival of your oldest child depended on what you did right now and so there was a, a strong sense of crisis and emergency and urgency and every sense was heightened uh, time stopped and you act out of immediacy in the moment, what to do next. And 
that's how we spent the next two years and two months mm. going through enormous heavy painful high cost decisions high cost not only financially but high costs uh, emotionally and at risk high risk decisions uh, there were as you know immediate treatments um, that were completely hospital intensive my wife has to leave her job and mercifully the University of Alabama where she taught uh, allowed her to walk away and just allowed her to go be with our daughter she was there she moved mm-hmm. in she never left she slept in the chair for two years yeah um, and, but she was the caregiver she was the policeman she was the advocate the cheerleader she was the encourager she was the uh, chastiser if any Anybody walked in that room, including hospital personnel that did not have Anna's best interest in mind and did not do their best when they walked in that door. She demanded that they be on point mm-hmm. and, and do what was necessary to save our daughter's life. And that's the sense that we lived in for, for that length of time. How you describe you know, the feeling that comes over you when you're hit like a truck with some news like that, whether it's cancer, whether it's another diagnosis, where it's an unexpected phone call that you're not expecting to hear somebody on another line say the words that they say, that tightening in your chest, that I can't breathe, that I'm going into this fog, I think anybody can relate to if they've had probably some experience like that. How did you and mom navigate all the decisions that had to be made how did you guys know what to do well Anna as I said was motivated she was 21 she was incredibly bright and hardworking. she had an enormous future she looked at this cancer even as serious as it was her attitude was this is an inconvenience for me I am delayed in what I want to do in the timeline I've got for it and but I will do what I have to do to get well and get out of here to get on with what I've got planned and that's sort of the way we both looked at it as far as your mom and me Um, Anna set the tone and we marched to those orders because it was her who were who was on the line we were just the support system and so we never entertained the idea of anything other than that as well. And so all that time um, really were just dealing with decisions based on that idea and attitude. There really was no other choice. And you just did what you had to do to hopefully try to bring about the best outcome possible for that day, every day. What that looked like looked different throughout those years you know from starting with traditional chemotherapy to then at the end getting into experimental trials because we were in you know a place where we didn't have a lot of options I didn't talk about this but Anna went through two bone marrow transplants during those years Well, they were sort of thirds in her cycle when you first get diagnosed with AML they do an incredibly tough chemo regimen that's in the hospital constantly for 90 days or whatever it is. So they feed you full of this stuff that just 
virtually kills you almost and it kills all the, a lot of your blood chemistry and everything else so that it will get rid of it and then once you're at your physical bottom low you you eventually build back up and at that point when if and when you get to the point where you're strong enough to leave at the, they consider you cured at that point she decided to okay now get back on with her plan and her plan was to go to graduate school and she had applied to the five best universities for higher education in the country and she had been accepted as all of them and she was applying in her hospital in her hospital she was going when she the day she was diagnosed she was had just gotten home from an interview in maryland at william and mary but she had plans and that she executed while she was recovering in the hospital. And she was accepted to the University of Georgia at the master's program by August. We were in Athens and she starts our graduate school by Thanksgiving. It had already returned. You know, um, I, just, I just want people to pause. You know, I want to step in for a second because... You know, you think about just the diagnosis alone and dealing with that idea and, and thinking, like, Anna, you know, this is an inconvenience. I'll be back on my way as soon as I can be. That's a huge undertaking in itself. And then making a decision to, like, go to graduate school and move into a new city and start this whole other cycle yourself. of your life. Like, right. that is a, for some people, that's so overwhelming. When you're in a position like this, you don't think about, can I do it or can I not do it? It's just, this is happening. Mm -hmm. This has been forced upon us and we're just gonna, we're gonna make it happen. The weight of any of these decisions is just so much. I think it deserves to be pointed out. So yeah, Anna went off to grad school and, and then what? Oh, she was doing really well in her first semester and then before the semester was even over, we get a call at three in the morning. Uh, she had been in a study session and she got sick in the middle of that evening and went to the bathroom. And one of her cohort, after a minute, went to check on her and found her crying in the bathroom, lying on the floor. And he rushes in, of course, and tries to inquire as to what's going on. And she said, it's back. She knew, she felt it, that it had returned. And by the end of that night, she could no longer even walk. It's like the battery just dies. Then they call us and the phone rings, which is never what you want as a parent. And, and there's this guy we've never talked to and telling us that they're with Anna in the hospital. We drive in the middle of the night, in the deep of night, headed to Athens to find the hospital. Indeed, it had returned. It had returned with a force. And at that point, treatment-wise, you are in line for a transplant. Virtually, just barely above the point of death, they give you uh, your life in a bag, and it pours into you. Then you wait, and you see if it takes. She recovered. Then she begins to improve and get healthy again. And But this time, the doctors say, you can't leave. You know, they don't tell you a lot about all that. you got to find out on your own what the process of, of medicine is. The doctors are looking at it from one sense. They know the road. They know what's going to happen, and they don't tell you because it would scare the crap out of you. Mm. 
and they also know the percentages and they know they just don't tell you anything and again with our perspective based on Anna's perspective this is an inconvenience we're going to get through what necessarily has to get through so I can get on with it uh, so Anna determines okay I can go and go back to school they said no you're not leaving the state you've got to be here to come be here every you know twice a week or whatever it was by that point you're just being treated that's all your job in life is at this point is to be a patient right and to be available to us they were saying in essence your life is over by their actions and Anna was saying hell no mm-hmm. it, it didn't as long as I can work and I feel like I can be productive I will be it comes back again again she was well for only a matter of months this time in this third of the treatment they've done all they know to do right and they're making it up at this point as they go along yeah this time they're giving her chemo that doesn't have a lot of human experience and so when you have heavy duty chemicals going into you the whole toll on your body of having to be knocked down to the body's limits over and over and over again and so they killed her bone marrow again in preparation for another transplant but this time there were complications the cumulative toll of the entire chemotherapy processes had weakened her organs and her system it even affected her mind you have a summa cum laude mind and work ethic who as you remember was reduced to an elementary school student and then her organs began to fail and she was on a ventilator she was on dialysis while at the same time the bone marrow is taking by the time she declined in the final phase she was a hundred percent donor again it had worked but she did not have the physical strength to outlive what they were doing to her she knew the gravity of every decision when the doctor came in and said we're going to try this this is what we want to do this is what's going to happen this is why you need it etc etc Anna's the one making that decision and she knew that there could be difficulties and at that time about a month out six weeks out she said to your mother and me she said don't give up on me so that determination was why we ended up still in the hospital still in the ICU on all those machines and she was not given the opportunity to by her choice to have a restful end that is accepting the fate and Anna would not do that Mm. she refused to acknowledge even the idea that this was a stopping event to her Mm -hmm. her dreams her life and her very existence and so we did what she wanted to do and uh, as you know it it just came to a point where she was gone eased into the other world and that was my first experience with death and it was it came even though we had such a long 
process leading up to it where you would think you are ready you're or ready no. and that you have had time to prepare with Anna we none of us entertain that we did entertain not shift it. into yeah. that acceptance mm-hmm. you know it's like being in a ball game and you don't quit you know the game's not over till it's over until it's over and you're you're out there doing what's necessary that's mm-hmm. what she, that was her mindset mm-hmm. and that's she had been prepared for years for that yeah and that's that's where we were and so yes when when that heart monitor went flat i think you remember there was not a sound in the room and as soon as the it went flat i, I just said oh god because that never was something that I even entertained. Mm-hmm. And now here we were. And so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. You know, you can hear, I'm sure you can hear it in our voice. It's, you never get over something like that. And for my dad, you know, that was... That was his daughter. And hearing you tell the story again, there's so much emotional, like, it's an emotional roller coaster of, like, the, okay, we're on the other side of this, and we're going to get, you know, this is, this is over. We're through this now, and then we're not. And then right. we're back at square one, and then you get some momentum, and you get some hope, and right. you feel like you're just hit again. Right. What sustained you? through all of that because our family was immediately divided from the day of diagnosis we had roles to play yeah for this situation and it was different roles than what we ordinarily had had as a family unit i then had the role of keeping everything going so you were operating from a there's not another option no. this is this is simply survival this is what has to happen and it has to happen as long as it needs to happen mm-hmm. for Anna to have the success in this treatment she needs to have. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to fail because of me. Right. I'm not going to be the weak link here. And so I don't care what physical or emotional or mental cost is involved. You just, if you're committed to somebody else's betterment, that's what you do. And yours will take care of itself. You know, I think so many people ask us all the time when they hear our story, and this is just a small part of it. How are you so strong? <laughs> you know, that's such a common thing. How are you so strong? Well, how did strong. you how did you do it? If if I were to get you know, that type of news I would just couldn't get out of bed. That's not an option. It's not an option. And and First of all, to you, under you the do of not it. entertain that idea. You're, contr- you're in control of what it is that you respond to. You don't entertain exhaustion. You don't entertain doubt. You don't entertain negative anything. You, you just have so many things on the next to-do list. You, your option, your, your goal every day is to get... The list, start the list and get to the end of the list mm-hmm. by bedtime. And and that is all you've got time for. So strength is not that I'm dealing with everything that could crush you. 
It's not that. I don't even think about that other stuff. It, it rolls like rain off a mm -hmm. duck's back. Um, and you do what you can do. And what I can do was to serve them. Do you feel like you were over that uh, that period of time processing everything that no. was happening? No. Uh -uh. Uh -uh. Because no, you were operating been... in this like just right. go, 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 get it done. That's what ha happened after. I mean, that's grieving. Mm. Grieving is process. The trauma you just experienced. You get to select when you do the processing. So uh, after she died, that's that's when you grieve. Mm. But our we didn't neither your mom nor I nor you had that opportunity to adequately do it at that time. It had to be interrupted because our parents were old. They declined and they they died themselves. And and each one of those comes to an end, you know. And and it seemed like like every. Oh, Six yeah. months, right. we were losing And somebody. in the middle of all of that, then your mom gets diagnosed. Right. And uh, your mom is diagnosed. She's a cancer patient. My father passes away first. Then my mother, I guess, mm -hmm. is the next in order. On Christmas Day. Yeah, Christmas morning. But we had all that to go through. Right. And so all of a sudden, our all, all of our family was now gone. And it's just me and... You and and your sick mom, and then of course her decline was was. And that was a five year process. It was a five year process, yes. But in the last uh, six months, it, yeah. it became obvious. When she left, then I'm literally in this house by myself. You're you already graduated. You've moved on. You've got career, changed jobs. It's just me in this dead space, and all of a sudden, for the first time in nine and a half years. I don't have any to-do list. <laughs> and my existence, as I knew it, was gone. I don't have a community. I don't see anybody. And all of a sudden, all you have is what goes on in your brain. And pet the cat. <laughs> now, I needed the rest. I needed the physical rest. I needed the emotional rest of not processing, not not doing anything. And that took about five months. And then I noticed depression for mm -hmm. the first time for me. Um, I'd heard people talk about depression. I'd heard descriptions of it. But I'd never felt it until it came to me. And it was like a third person that you, you knew this was not in me. This was upon me. Mm -hmm. Like a blanket mm -hmm. that had been placed on you. I had to do something about it. So you were cognizant. You were yeah. aware. I, yes, I knew this wasn't. This didn't feel right. This, this came was, to you. Yeah. And I had to make a plan to get out of that. So I had to force myself to uh, get out of the house. I decided to find ways to be around people. You know, to be less. Did you morose. even know what you were looking for? Not really. Not the specifics. It was just a feeling. Yeah. My brain was telling me, my mind was telling me, my soul, whoever talks to you, is saying, you got to do this. This is what, move in the this way direction. Out. Yeah. And I don't care what you do, but move in this direction. So the first thing I did was uh, uh, start a card game. Yeah. Of just running, you know, on Monday nights. 
and asked uh, close friends that had been part of the of your life, my life, um, there in, in circumstances, who were card players. It was just an activity they enjoyed. Something to. And we used to, you know, when y'all were young, we do. used to play cards a lot, and we just hadn't done it in yeah. years and years. <laughs> we hadn't had years. time, and um, it was fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And so every week there was an opportunity to have seven, eight, ten people here and talk and eat dinner and just enjoy each other. I try to start pulling myself out of this damn house. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, later on, you know, I I asked you, would it mind if I started dating somebody? I needed to, what I, when Pam was diagnosed, my, my fear it was not for her. My fear was for me. It was being without her. Yeah. And I knew I could not be alone well. Yeah. And it was worse than I thought when it came. Because you'd been with her since I'd been, you were... Yes. I, I met her when I was a college student. Uh, we started dating at 21. And we're married by the end of that year mm-hmm. at 21. I ran into a relationship with her and was gleeful that um, I had found a partner that accepted me and wanted me and, and and so all of a sudden I was alone for the first time in my life and also my brother dies during that time uh, before Pam died mm-hmm. and uh, I literally have no family except you and now, when she's gone, I'm by myself. You're in another city. And I, that was not good. And it was not going to be good. And I had to decide to go find uh, uh, someone whom I could interact with on a, on a real-life daily basis, you know, and, and share life with. And mercifully, I, I, I found somebody. And all of a sudden, when you're with the right person, contentment begins to come back and normalcy begins to come back and uh, it's never the same but it's a new phase of okayness as okay as you're going to be for what you've been through where was God in all this? that's a good question it depends on what you refer to when you for you talking about what God is for you not what other people you know other people's idea of what that is my idea of God during that time changed a whole lot because it it was no longer warm and fuzzy because warm and fuzzy stuff was not happening everything was immediate everything was hugely important everything had dire consequences and we were going through end after end after end after end. So God for me was um, defined as holding on to the idea of coming out on the other side. The hope of normalcy again. Of quiet. Relief. Of peace. Of being out of the storm. I never thought that I would be happy again. Much less, I thought the idea of being joyful was over. 
Joy was dead inside of me. And the best I thought I could hope for was peace. Um, but going back to the beginning from Anna forward, it, it's literally holding on to the idea of hope. Because if you didn't have the hope that it would work out in its time, when you, you navigate the rapids that you're in, then there's you're just accepting falling off the falls yourself. And I wasn't going to do that any more than Anna was going to do that. Yeah. God was the promise of hope. So, did you feel alone or did you feel like... No, no, no. It wasn't anything like that. It was either, it was just two roads. You work toward as if, or you take the road where it is not, which is a pretty dark place. Mm -hmm. And there's really no choice. Again, I mean, the choice is obvious. What allows you to, to do that is to give up on your notion that you can control anything. So you're just enduring with hope. Let me also say, God showed up. But God did not show up in the way it's popular to refer to. I was not prepared for the people and how, when my struggles became evident, how other people reacted to me. And watching those people support me and support our family in real ways of communication, of encouragement, of these people had fundraisers, they, uh, they had uh, prayer vigils, they made prayer shawls, they delivered them, they did any and everything they could do to be there. And it, re and it became obvious to me that the definition of God for me is in uh, serving somebody else. You know, I started at one point to write a book about Anna, and I remember writing, and it occurred to me that every good thing that had ever happened to me that was supportive of me, that came from the hand of somebody, not an ethereal, out of the sky, come down and lightning strikes and some good basket shows up or a bunch of cash shows up. It was an up. act of love. It was through the hands of somebody else yeah. who chose to do something for somebody else. Yeah. And that aid and assistance that that person decided to give energy to, to make happen for somebody else's benefit is where the blessing came. That's God to me. Mm -hmm. And so God to me became in the form of people and has stuck with me ever since that that's where God is. It's the I and you and you and me deal from the Bible. And so when I worship, it is with somebody. Not in community. In it's in others. association. Yeah. With how you treat somebody else. How... You empathize with somebody else, how you help somebody else or instruct somebody else. And fortunately, our, our uh, goal was, to, I mean, our occupation was to teach. And teachers are nothing but helpers Yeah. to get your charges, your students, from point A 
to point B, not only in activity, but in changed cognition, changed thinking, changed behavior. And so that includes all all kinds of things, not just the subject you're teaching. And... uh, but it's a connectedness of all yes. of us. Right. In yoga, we say when they say namaste, that means I bow to the God in you. Yeah, well, yeah. And you bow to the God exactly. in Exactly. Here's an example. There's so many. But the one that is the most significant to me was the Moss family. At the time, their oldest daughter, Kate, was 12. What Anna was diagnosed that started her treatment. And she decided to do a fundraiser by crocheting little purses. And she sold these for $20 a piece. The girl gave us over $1,000. Now, conceive of the energy and the effort required for a 12-year-old to make by hand every $20 increment to get to $1,000 and then gleefully give it away give it away is almost incomprehensible to me. Now when you're on the reception end of that kind of gift you become real familiar with what's real and what's not and where it is and why it is. And your definitions change, your perception changes, and it doesn't ever unchange. Once you know, you don't unknow. And you can't go back to being being just one of the crowd. You know, and uh, we had a lot of that. So many people held us, held us up, um, loved us, and yeah, the Moss family is just one one of of so many, but definitely mean so much to us, and really are the hallmark of what what it means to understand that God is among us. God is action. Yeah, God is among us. Love is action. Love is not words. Yeah. Love is never words. Mm -hmm. You know, you you said something about the deep, like, desire within you to share something with the world that hasn't been done before. And I think this hit me when you said that, the only thing for me, because I, I that I can't think of, you know, I don't have come up with some invention that doesn't exist. I don't know any unknown facts. Um, the authentic, original thing that I can give the world, and you can give the world, and everybody can, is our story, because nobody else has that but us. And um, which is why I wanted to do this podcast. And any wisdom that comes from living that story. Yeah, that's that's ours, and that's no one can take that from us. Right. Have you crossed over? Are you on the other side in terms of lightness? Has the blanket mostly lifted? Mostly, yeah. 
It'll show up every now and then. Yeah. But it's, well, for example, it's not really something that comes to me. It's something that is prodded in me from an outside source. For example, there was one of Pam's former students who had deliberately been off of Facebook for years. And she had returned and was trying to kind of catch up on what all she had lost in her connections with uh, the people that she interacted with before she got off of Facebook. And she discovered that Pam had passed away and was crushed. I mean, literally crushed. And then caused to write an extended memoriam, so to speak, uh, to my wife. And because she had tagged Pam, it showed up in me because Pam's account has been memorialized and I'm the custodian of that. And so mm -hmm. I get all of the notifications. And so I saw this thing and, uh, and you read it and you just go, wow. And so it all kind of comes back for a while uh, for that day. Yeah. Um, Some people describe grief like a wave. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. They come and they go. Yeah. And unfortunately, there are forever the anniversaries. There's always going to be the anniversaries of diagnosis. There's going to be the anniversaries of death. There's going to be... Mother's days. And yeah. Those established. Yes, right. I forget exactly what caused her to say it for the first time, but she came up with a, with a, with a notion that if you quit talking about Anna, she will cease to exist. And that notion's pretty profound because, you know, all you have is memory. Mm-hmm of somebody and the most valuable things after somebody dies are photographs and or recordings mm -hmm. and I remember your mother grieved we we got new phones and your mom got a new phone and I was uh, real excited for her and then she came to the crushing realization that all her voice messages are gone and Anna's voice was in those voice messages. And she would no longer be able to hear the voice. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty true in a metaphysical point of view. And so, um, for one thing, that's one of the reasons that uh, I do post. Mm -hmm. And that she did. A lot. Well, yeah, we have plenty of videos of Mom. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, oh, yeah with her uh, rants but the thing is mom and Anna both touch so many people yeah. and it's not just us you know so many people like this yeah. lady post about her talk about her talk about the things they taught them one of the things I wanted to read was actually what um, Anna's cohort Alex had written Alex was the one that went into the bathroom and found her mm -hmm. and, uh, and took her to the hospital. I find it hard to reflect on May 9th, 2011 without thinking about November 15th, 2009. We were working on our presentation at the last minute, which was typical for Mark and me, yet atypical for Anna. 
Sitting in that apartment, I remember feeling the weight of our project and the nerves stirring in my stomach. Anna wasn't feeling well either. I kept telling her it was probably stress-related or maybe the crushed red pepper flakes. She knew, though. It wasn't her stomach. It wasn't her nerves. It was something bigger. I remember the fear in her eyes and feeling the fever in her forehead. She excused herself to go to the bathroom, and I followed her a few seconds later. I found Anna in the floor next to the toilet, and she was crying. In that moment, life became very real. My head was previously focused on cast standards and PowerPoint slides, yet my heart led me to sit on the bathroom ledge next to her. And there we were. An innocent, beautiful young girl facing leukemia and a clueless friend, scared out of his mind, who didn't know what to do. There was nothing I could do to change what was happening. The only thing I could do was to help her realize she wasn't alone. I placed my arm around her and sat there until she was done crying. The night changed everything. I may not have realized it then, but I certainly do now. Last year, when I got the news of Anna's passing, I fled. I drove straight to Athens to be with those who would help me remember that I was not the only one going through that moment. There was nothing anyone could do that night, nothing except take the time to remember that even in death, we're not alone. Life is not about pride or homework or making yourself look good or deadlines or hiding from the world or even knowing the way. Life is about those moments when you're afraid and you don't know what to say. When you're unsure of how to act and you can't predict what's about to happen. Life is about those moments that remind you that you're not alone. Those moments when all you know to do is love. Life is about moments like November 15th and May 9th. Sure, those nights brought horrible pain, tears, suffering, distress, loss, and feelings I would wish on no other human being. But I would be lying if I said those nights didn't save me. Those nights reminded me that I'm not alone, that Anna was not alone, that none of us are alone. But that just is like a reminder, like, we're not the only ones talking about them. Oh, no. You know? And we're not the only people that experience this. Our our situation is not... Uncommon. Uncommon. Yeah. It's just that as you go through your own life, you're dealing with responsibilities on a daily basis. You're dealing with your dreams on a daily basis. It's pretty much about uh, keeping going what you've built and continuing to build on to the next thing. And all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, it changes. Mm-hmm. And there's uncertainty involved. There's pain involved. There's crisis involved. There's disaster. There's the real possibility of losing everything you have, everything you hold dear, both person wise and material things you're surfing those waters that you did not expect to have to do you're not prepared for you have no clue as to how to do that though that's that's when you're tested it can be any kind of situation doesn't have to be illness it can be job change it can be economic loss it can be natural disaster it can be hurricane it Mm -hmm. can be earthquake it can be uh, any sort of upheaval all of a sudden uh, you're gonna go through difficulty more more difficulty than you could ever conceive of it is inevitable everybody is it's part of life and it's also part of growth coming through that on the other side 
and also knowing that in whatever time of peace you're in, there's going to be some more. Mm-hmm. Because it's a wave, it's a cycle, and that's what life is. In the, in the survival and in the wisdom gained from that, that tends to be socially private. They don't want to talk about that. And what you're trying to do, and I admire that, is to make even more, share the word that everybody will go through this at some time. And maybe this is how I dealt with it. If it's useful, fine, use it. If it's not, disregard it and go on and find what's right for you. But I think for me, what ultimately I've realized that I think allows me to connect on a, a pretty deep level with a lot of people is... Even in what I, you know, in my career, when I was selling, when I was a salesperson, I would find myself in in these meetings or with these opportunities or at a table I really didn't belong in, where I didn't have any experience or was by far the least experienced. But my approach was always that I, I talk to people like they're people. And it doesn't matter if you're sitting in the corner office, you're cleaning, offices at night what race background country you're from religion you practice how much money you make we are all connected and when you can see that recognize that embrace that you'll be better for it and um that's where god is yeah is in that conversation mm-hmm. in that exchange he, he's right where you he's right here with us right now you know well, yeah. It's almost a sacred exchange, you know, just the communication to strangers. And how you treat others is a representation of who you are. You tell everybody who you are Don't by what you do. Yeah. So, in closing, for somebody that's going through cancer, that's in a dark place, and what has all this taught you? Patience. Just patience in the moment. Deal with what has to be done. I, I can't, I have no experience of what it is as the victim. So I really can't speak to that from an experiential point of view. But as an intimate observer for which their experience depended in large part, for me, being right there in the front row seat, it's patience. It's waiting, hoping. Learning about how to be, how to be in the moment. It wasn't enduring it from their perspective. So all I can do is sit and admire and document both Anna and Pam's victimness and how they personally experienced it. I mean, I'm sure. But neither of them had, even though it was happening to them, they weren't a victim. No. Now your mother was more accepting of her finality. Mm-hmm. I mean, we knew she was going to die. When you accept that, then you... She was always a very real person anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, Lord, the volume went up yep. when she got diagnosed. Yeah. She did not waste much breath. Mm-hmm. She, When she spoke and when she acted, it was on purpose. And it was with a sense of finality. In every relationship that she had, she treated it as important. The exchange... Mm-hmm. was significant, it was vital, it was important. It was, I love you, I care for you. I need you to know that. I need you to know that. 
or I see this, you need to get on this journey and you need to transform yourself yeah. or you need to, and there was a vitalness to what? An urgency. Right. Yeah. What she was trying to help that person. Yeah. But see, one plan. I'm trying to do that without being the victim. I'm trying to prepare for when I am, because it's going to come. It'll come to everybody. Everybody's going to. Because people get uncomfortable seems. when you start talking about death a lot of times. And I, and I think you too, have a very different perception uh, of that and what that means. And to the extent that we're not afraid. You start talking about death and people are like, oh God, you're so morbid, blah, blah, blah. But that is the one common thing that's going to come to all of us. That's right. And so, you need to learn how to die well. Yeah, but I want to learn how to live well before. Right. And that's the goal and why I'm doing this and why I feel like it's important to tell their story, tell my story, tell tell our story. What do you want your legacy to be? I want people to be grateful they knew me. I'm at peace with people. I don't like tension. I'm not a controversial person. I am a truthful person and I believe in the transformative knowledge that comes with recognition of what truth is. And I think truth is what everybody is looking for. Recognize what it is and learn from what it is. And it allows you to be at peace with people and let them have their struggles if they're going to insist on being in that situation or in that mindset that leads them to their trouble. When appropriate and when asked if necessary, you can offer some suggestions. But mainly thing you're offering is an example. Mm-hmm. And if they're at peace with me, that's the best I can hope for. And if I've helped them in any way, mm-hmm. I'm glad. I, I tried. Well, I know this was heavy. It often feels heavy, but it feels light to... To release it and to let people know um, just more about what we've been through, what it's meant to us, how we've been changed by it, why we we are the way we are, um, and that there is another side to all of it. And I'd say it, I say it, this too shall pass. Be present in the moment, enjoy the seasons of, of the good, and know that the bad will will wash over you. It's a test. The, the troubles are a test, and they will come to an end. Be conscious of how you're enduring the test, because that's where you find wisdom. While it's a heavy conversation that we have, that's where truth is found. Yeah. And that's what you need to know. You don't have to like the thing that you have to accept. You just have to accept it. You didn't know if joy would come back into your life. You, you, would, you would just take peace. And I like the quote that peace is joy at rest and joy is peace on feet. I'll buy that. So maybe you can have both. I'll buy that. I'm getting there. Yeah. So thank you for being on. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome.